This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. And welcome to Chapter Tactics, your 40k podcast that focuses on playing Warmer 40k competitively at all levels of the game. I'm your host, Mr. Pablo, and today for episode number 136, we're going to deep dive into what it takes to play the same army consistently and perform well despite 40k's ever-changing competitive climate. We're also going to go over some tips on how to beat Space Marines and continue to be a top-performing player without switching over to the dark side, which is uh, not the Chaos side, surprisingly, but the Loyalist side. Because um, a lot of top players are switching over to Space Marines. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with that, but we're just going to throw a little shame in their direction. Now, for this episode, I, of course, have no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, the last 40k tournament I was in, I lost more than I won, and I didn't do too well. So... I brought two guests with me today. Uh, both of these guests are top 10 ITC players, have a combined 33 recorded ITC tournament scores between them. They have 15 first place finishes at RTTs, GTs, and majors, which is a lot between both of them. And only 10 times this year have they not been in the top four at an event. So they have more first place finishes combined than they do have not top fours. That's, that's really impressive. Uh, of course, these wins span across the entire ITC season, uh, and they have not changed their army a whole lot. They definitely didn't change their faction, and with the exception of one Iron Hands debacle, where I think Brian got first place, and I just revealed one of them, uh, they have largely not changed their faction, which is very, very impressive, and not something you see very often. So, say hello to Mr. Richard Siegler. Hey, thanks for having me, Pablo. Thank you for coming on, and of course, Mr. Brian Pullen. Hey, Pablo. Thanks for having me. All right. All right. So this episode was brought to you by the brand new Frontline Gaming Network, Frontline Gaming, and of course, the amazing patrons over at our Patreon. Patrons get access to the Facebook group, Discord, get to ask us questions at the end of every episode, and are eligible to win a special prize every month. This month's special prize for November, we're not going to have one because the one at the end of the year, at the end of December, is going to be big. I want to make it extra special, um, so I need one month to prepare for it. Uh, so if you're interested in that, go to over chapter patreon.com slash chapter tactics uh, where you can help support the podcast also uh, i did say last week i was going to release a bonus episode that did not happen unfortunately due to scheduling issues and reese telling me no uh, i did not release the episode that's okay not a big deal where well, that's still going to come up this week and it's still available over on patreon so if you want to get early access to that episode it's still up on our patreon page where you can listen to it all right before we go on if you want to check out Brian and Richard a little more, if you're a Tau player looking to get that extra step, you can check them both out now officially 
on the Art of War podcast on the Frontline Gaming Network. Uh, Brian and Richard, I believe you both have now been on that podcast and talked about your respective Tau lists. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, what what was it like? What was it like getting on the on the episode on the Art of War talking to Nick Nadavati, uh, talking to your Tau list, talking about your Tau lists in particular. Um, was was a lot of fun. You know, just kind of like give the audience who maybe haven't seen the art or listened to the Art of War yet a little taste of um, what they can expect out of those episodes. Uh, you know, I just recorded mine uh, maybe about a week and a half ago, and uh, so it's pretty fresh in my mind. And uh, I had just come off of SoCal where I actually just played my first game against uh, Nick. Um, we'd been kind of close to playing a lot of times, but that was the first time we ever got a chance to play. And so, yeah, it was really great to get a chance to talk about that game. And at SoCal, Nick and I talked a lot about um, what he could have done differently in our game and and uh, how the Tau was faring. And so we already had a really good discussion going at the event and kind of just continued that into the podcast. So it was, uh, yeah, it was a great discussion and uh, always happy to share my thoughts about the Tau because it's an army I've been thinking about a lot. Right on. Uh, Richard, I know yours was a long time ago. As a matter of fact, the first Art of War episode. Uh, do you remember your time on it? Uh, yeah. So actually, I think it was the third uh, overall. Was it the third episode? I don't remember but, what the first episode was. I, I recorded it. So I recorded my episode right before Nova, and mm. I at that time I had no intention of actually playing a Nova due to my teaching schedule. Mm. But things worked out, and I was able to make it. And um, you know, I was very fortunate to win Nova. But in terms of the episode, Nick is a fantastic player himself. He knows how to ask the right questions, um, and by and large, the Art of War is probably easily the top one of the top three podcasts out there for competitive 40k just deep dives into um, how players think about the game their tactics going into it uh, all the little things about their lists uh, and their design um, really rewarding for up-and-coming players i agree 100 percent um it, I, lo- I love that nick has given a voice to a lot of other good 40k players uh, and nick definitely hasn't uh, been shy about who he's had on, who he's had tried to have on on the Art of War. Uh, normally, when you see a lot of these, like not competitive podcasts, but podcasts in general, or a lot of these 40k personalities, uh, they do tend to stay in in their own circles, which is fine. You you can really only have access, you really have access to the people that you reach out to, right? Uh, but Nick definitely has uh, his pulse on the community, on the competitive community, and definitely knows who to bring on the show. Um, and I love it. I've been enjoying it as well, too. So check that out. The Art of War on Frontline Gaming Network on YouTube or FrontlineGaming.org. All right. So we're missing someone. Mr. Val Heffelfinger. Uh, Val has been traveling from Florida. Or, well, not... Well, Florida, He's he's been all over the East Coast. But I believe his last spot was Florida before he went back up to his hometown in Canada. But... Uh, he's been traveling, and he's promised me that he would come on this episode and glean some Tau information from Richard and Brian. Uh, but unfortunately, he has succumbed to the dreaded traveling bug, uh, and he cannot make it. So, he was supposed to talk a little bit about Warzone Atlanta, which did happen this weekend. But luckily, we have another person on the podcast who did attend Warzone Atlanta, and I heard that they did pretty well. Uh, so, Richard, do you want to talk a little bit about Warzone Atlanta uh, and uh, maybe hype it up for anyone who hasn't been? Sure. Uh, so this was actually my first Warzone Atlanta, um, and it is an absolute blast. Uh, it's basically like a, a giant party. Um, there's a lot of tremendous players. Most of the best players in the South 
uh, attend this event, and then players from all over the country also attend. So it's a highly competitive event. Um, they use a different mission format, the Warzone format, um, and similar to the ITC, uh, these missions tend to favor going second um, to have that lat that bottom of the turn uh, to jump on objectives, uh, especially those progressive ones. Um, and they one of the other rules I really like is their cover rule, which is that even if you aren't on terrain, if your models are at least 50% obscured, they gain a cover save. Uh, so for me, that meant that Riptides block, could block other Riptides uh, and give themselves cover saves. Uh, drones could give each other cover saves. And while this wasn't um, didn't come up in too many games, um, it was incredibly powerful in a game I played against an Orc player, um, where his shooter boys um, unfortunately didn't kill many drones at all, uh, thanks to their 3-up uh, armor save in cover. Um, but I thought that Warzone was an absolute blast, and I can't wait to go again. Um, if you didn't, um, if you weren't there, you can check out uh, the stream games through the Pro Tabletop stream on Twitch. Um, a lot of good games on there. Uh, Sean Naden versus Adam Abramowitz, and then uh, I also had a game against Nick Nadavati in round two. Uh, so check them out. Yeah, yeah, I, I love I love that we have these large majors. Um pretty consistently now all feels like there's one 100 plus person major every month uh and then you get a lot of these really great players playing at these majors and you know you get a lot of really good games so uh streaming is big now uh i'm so glad that that there's more people streaming now uh you've got obviously frontline gaming gw but now you have down under pairings you have the iron halo uh you have jason horn with iron halo traveling to different tournaments now and streaming and bringing on guests from around the world uh and then, you, of course, you have the pro tabletop guys jumping into the stream. You know, guys with a competitive, professional setup. Uh, it's it's just it's good. It's exciting. Um, I know there are other players looking to jump into the stream game um, without giving too much away. And of course, I, I forgot to mention Honest War Gamer Rob, um, who is also doing a great job traveling and covering events too. So it's really exciting. Uh, check it out. And if you have a chance, just go to Twitch and look at some awesome 40k games for any of those tournaments. Now. We had uh, last-minute guests swoop in here right before we go to the main topic. Uh, he heard streaming internationally and flew all the way from Canada to be here today in my room. Peter the Falcon. Kaka! How you doing? with us. He's doing good. He literally heard me talking about 40k streaming. And I think I said, I think I might have misspoke a stat once at the beginning uh, and he probably it summoned him. So if you ever want to summon Peter the Falcon, talk about 40k streaming and get some stats wrong. Did you? Were you talking stats without me? I was. I, I said that that they had a combined 33 recorded ITC tournament scores between them. Oh sure, that sounds fine. That I, I don't had, care. <laughs> yes, I got it right. Thank He's you. just making up. Just making up stats. Sixty-four percent of stats are made me. up, so it's it's perfect. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Um, so let's go ahead and jump right into the main topic. Um, I want to talk about, before we go into anything else, I, I want to give everyone an idea of what kind of Tau Army the both of you play. It is similar, uh, though as I understand it, it it's different, and you both uh, take just kind of uh, the same approach or the same kind of outcome uh, and then go at it in a different way. So um, first off, Richard Siegler, what does a Richard Siegler Tau list look like? What would what would be, if you could stamp a Tau list and say that is a Richard Siegler list, what would that look like? Uh, so fundamentally, my list is design, designed around a couple units. Uh, first, the classic three Riptides. Um, then I take three Cyclic Ion Commanders. Um, absolutely brutal. 
Um, they are incredible against every single unit in the game. Uh, and then they are backed up by at least 40 drones. Um, most of my lists revolve around 42 to 46 drones, um, sometimes a couple more. Um, but that's generally the core. A couple of different things that I tend to do is I have a lot of two-man shield drone units. Um, they're fantastic at screening. They're very good against high-volume weapons. Uh, they force your opponent to really think about their target priority and how to split fire. Um, oftentimes, those two-man drone units are either overkilled or underkilled. Um, and also in my list, I tend to run a lot of marker-like characters, especially the BS, the Ballistic Skill 2-up characters, the Fireblades and Darkstrider. And I also run a lot of Pathfinder teams, mainly in order to get access to the Pathfinder drones, in particular the Grab drone, which subtracts D3 from any charges declared within 12 of it. And this is absolutely crucial against uh, many of the combat armies that are in the meta. Um, so that's what my Tau lists tend to revolve around. All right, uh, Brian, what does a Brian pool list look like? Same question. Uh, and then how does that list differ from what Richard normally brings? You know, I think most people would agree that what you see commonly for Tau is is pretty similar in the form of the three Riptides. Um, anyone who usually deviates from that uh, kind of knows they're being less than efficient. Um, and so my, my, my Tau armies, I think every single Tau army I've played seriously this year has had the three Riptides. Um, and uh, what I do with the rest of that is there's, there's some similarities. I, I usually have between 30, 30 plus drones. Um, I've been skewing more and more drones as the season's gone on because I've just found that they've uh, been the right tool for um, for solving the problems I have, which are normally about board control with the same kind of smaller smaller drone squads. Um, I also have several commanders, but I definitely experiment a lot with the commander loadouts, uh, going between the Ion and more, more recently, the Cold Stars with Fusion. Um, and I've, I've had the Cold Stars with Fusion off and on, and I kind of bring them in as the meta dictates. Uh, but... They've worked well, and I've experimented with the uh, I've experimented with the Pathfinders and their drones. Uh, actually, mostly because um, of a, a short conversation with with Richard a while back, maybe BAO. Uh, he was talking about how he uses them, and and I've tried it out, and um, they work well. But um, I don't think I get the same mileage out of them that uh, that Richard does. So uh, I'm not uh, I'm not as as sold on that. And one big difference is I typically don't use the uh, marker light characters and uh, I try to go for more marker light drones and and uh, play a little differently that way hmm. really interesting so all I heard was uh tau 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 that's right <laughs> tau. <laughs> uh, I'm just joking uh so I I always thought I was normally thought of the marker light characters as every time I played tau I, I've always had a hard time dealing with the marker light characters uh but does that mean that you have more drones than Richard, Brian, because you have marker drones, and so they, I know they can also do the the protocols as well too. Yeah. So does that mean you have more drones than Brian? Or, I mean, than Richard? Sorry. Um, I'm not sure. My this in the at SoCal I had 47. Most of the time I won't have quite that number. I'll have a little less. But um, I think I don't know, Richard. What do you normally run? How many? Um, lately and at Warzone I ran 42 drones. Yeah. So I had a few more. Um. But I don't yeah, run the battalion. That's another main difference between us. That's right. I yeah. run the 6CP version, um, and Brian has those basically about 100 points of infantry uh, that I don't have. Yep, that's true. And I, I flip-flop on that as well. I take yeah. them in and out. And uh, I've um, every time I take them out, uh, you know, one out of every 
five games or six games. I feel, uh, wouldn't it be nice to just have those throwaway fire warriors um, that I make good use of? And then, you know, every time I, I put them back in, I think, you know, a couple out of five games, uh, wouldn't it be great if I didn't have these fire warriors? So I'm not, uh, I'm not really sure how, how I feel. And I kind of go back and forth on the battalion. Hmm. So uh, Richard, before the game, before the, the podcast, we were talking about, a Tau in their position as a faction. Uh, now, I've got Peter the Falcon in here. I was just going to say what Peter told me, but I'd rather have Peter say it himself. And that's where Tau are positioned in the meta currently. Uh, now, Peter mentioned that Tau were not uh, the as dominant a faction as someone would think, looking at talking to two really good Tau players, and Richard and Brian. Um, but Peter, where exactly do Tau stand uh, in general in the meta in, from a statistics perspective um, uh, up compared to the rest of the Up field? until this week... Um... They were kind of like middle good. They, they were sitting, um, if you look at uh, post the Iron Hands FAQ in particular, so that kind of four-week period we've had since uh, the meta kind of stabilized slightly uh, from that that big rift, uh, Tav's had around a 50%, almost dead on 50% win rate. Um, you've got really good performances from guys like Richard and Brian, but they're being offset um, by you know poor performances uh, almost across the board. Um, but that being said, this week uh, was... I haven't uploaded the stats for this week yet. It'll probably be tomorrow. Um, but this week was huge, uh, particularly Warzone Atlanta. I'm not particularly sure if it's because of um, the Warzone missions, um, but they jumped about like 5% in, uh, in win rate just from that event alone. Um, they had like 15 players, so almost 10% of the meta there was Tau, which is uh, double what we've been seeing since the Marine Codex came out. Um, and they had a lot of really good performances. They're proliferating. Yeah. On, honestly, one of the jokes is that the South has, by and large, the vast majority of Tau players, <laughs> um, and especially like the meta Tau players, the competitive <laughs> ones. Um, Brohammer alone has, you know, five or six competitive Tau players. Yeah, you guys got the other Richard, the baby Richard. And it is something I've seen before from, uh, like, some of the Florida events. You'll see, like, 20% Tau just out of nowhere, um, when usually they're about four <laughs> to five. Um, but, yeah, like, Warzone Atlanta was pretty big for, for Tau. They had a lot of good performances on, on top of Richard's. Um, so, yeah, Tau and looked think... really good overall. Um, about a 54% win rate. Uh, 52 if you remove uh, Warzone Atlanta from the numbers. So still like pr pretty decent. They're they're nowhere near what where, where Marines are right now, um, but they're falling more in line with uh, uh, like Imperial Knights at the at the current standpoint. Mm -hmm. So you know uh, upper tier That's, for sure. It's pretty popular. Now let's talk to the the non East Coast Tau player, the only good Tau player on the West Coast. I'm sure he's not the <laughs> only good Tau player. Ooh, man, <laughs> I'm sure there's All plenty of other out there. Good. <laughs> but uh, I, I want to talk to uh, the West Coast's elite Tau player uh, and Brian. Now, Brian, uh, Richard said that it's with both of your respective lists, it's really hard for the average person or even a really good player, uh, like Richard put it, um, to pick up these lists and do well with them. Now, that's yeah, something that you definitely drove home, both of you, a point that you drove home in the Art of War podcasts. So I definitely think that those podcasts are a great supplement to this one if you're listening to this. But why is that? Why is these? It it seems so simple, right? Like you have three good units. You have the Tau Commander, Shield Drones, and Riptides. Uh, and then, as I understand it, the rest of the Codex is, eh, and then nothing else. So, so you would think that with such a simple formula, 
you would be able to do well. But um, I had, and I've seen it as well. This isn't just something that Richard and you are kind of saying, but also in general, it is hard to play Tau. It is hard to do well with these lists. Um, these aren't simple lists. They aren't lists that you can pick up and win majors with. Uh, but why is that? Yeah, so I, I would agree with that assessment that the Tau are a very unforgiving army. And uh, I'd say there's a couple things that attribute you can attribute that to. Uh, whenever you're playing a Tau army, you have very few assets that are actually going to um, be be there for damage output. A lot of your army, like drones, can, can play the mission. But uh, with three Riptides and maybe three commanders, you've got six assets. And Tau... Uh, surprisingly, if you do the math, they don't actually output that number of shots, right? Like my entire Tau army shoots less than one unit of aggressors in, in volume of shots. And so the army doesn't actually have that much shooting. The reason it shoots so well is because typically your assets don't die turn after turn after turn. And so by turn four, five, and six, you have as much firepower as you started the game with. And so it's only sustained over the extent of the game that you have a lot of shots, but in any one turn, you don't. Um, so if you lose even one asset, um, you're, you're actually losing an enormous amount of damage potential. And it is actually really easy to lose a single Tau asset or more if you make even a couple small mistakes. Um, and that's because the entire army has layers of aura abilities. You have, for the greater good, for Overwatch, you have Savior Protocols for Drones from multiple units. You have your Master of War ability from your commander. You have your Ethereal Ranges for their abilities, and um, making sure that you have all these bubbles precisely and that you're uh, doing things in, in just exactly the right order, that's what's going to be crucial to getting not only the most out of your assets, but keeping them alive. And so uh, I find that when you start making a mistake with Tau, it can snowball very quickly into a very severe loss. Yeah, and aura management is another interesting thing that um, I don't think I've heard any podcast cover or talk about, but it's actually a big part of the game, um, and especially when you play Tau. I know every time I've played Tau, I've played maybe like 20 games or so with Tau this year, um, so not a lot, nearly not as much as either of you have in terms of games played against or with Tau, but um, in every time game I've played, it's been pretty much the similar same list that uh, I've seen you two play uh, with the Three of Tides and a lot of Shield Drones and Tau Commanders. Um, and I've always felt like I needed to kind of kill... I didn't just kill drones at random. I always had to kill drones that were affecting the largest amount or auras that were affecting the largest amount of units. And it just it feels like a weird game of like aura management where I have to look in the chinks of the Tau player's armor or their defenses uh, and I have to kill the drones who, who are in the best position to defend the rest of the army. Or if I see a character, I have to look at where that character is. And then obviously... The Overwatch thing is a huge deal. You have to look yeah. at everyone within six inches of each other, and then uh, on top of that, you will, because auras are true distance. Um, when you start involving terrain into it, or when Tau players start jumping onto buildings to hide away from the scary Smash captains, um, you start to look at aura measurements there too, and you have to start measuring vertically and horizontally, uh, or diagonally. Um, uh, it, it just it gets very interesting. That's that's just an interesting side topic. Uh, if you're interested in hearing about aura management that's something i would like to talk about maybe in a future yeah and I, I think the the other big thing that i like to or at least this is the way i see the army is a lot of people think of tau as a purely offensive force and that that's the way you play and that's the way you win but you know my perception of tau has always been that it is actually a defensive force and that um you if you play tau defensively that's when you're gonna, gonna win and it's the players who like to play tau 
overly aggressively or overly offensively that we'll lose the game. And Tau, you know, not just because of the drones and the Overwatch ability, um, but the idea, as I said, that you need to keep all your assets alive until the end of the game. That's how you win. Um, so even if you need to forego shooting or, or forego maximizing your shooting in order to keep your assets alive, that's a higher priority. And, and I'd say most Tau players have those priorities flipped. They go for a really heavy alpha or beta strike um, when they really should just be playing the game and keeping their assets alive. Mm. Richard, uh, first off, uh, what do you think of Brian's assessment? Uh, and then also, is there anything else that you think that makes Tau, a, a, or specifically yours and Brian's lists, uh, difficult to play for even good players? Hmm. So I'd absolutely like to second what Brian just said. Uh, for me, it's the same that Tau's greatest strength is its durability. Um, it's pretty unique in that aspect. And this is obviously the suit list. Um, and it's one of the many reasons why I don't run the mech Tau list with the hammerheads and the sky rays, uh, because it just, it's about going first. It's about doing critical damage. And sometimes you just go second. Um, there might not be a lot of terrain and you just lose right out. Um, on the other hand, the riptide list, it just survives. And some examples of what Brian was talking about, of just keeping assets alive. Uh, there was a game at Nova um, where it, it was actually round one where I started losing all, most of my drones against a pure guard list, um, and I had basically just the Riptides and my characters left. Um, what I started to do was put them on the three-up invuln, and then I hid. I started hiding the Riptides in the L's, foregoing their shooting except for the SMS, and just using the commanders to finish off what he had. Um, I didn't need the Riptide shooting. I just needed to make sure that my commanders didn't die, um, and that was a trade I was willing to make. All right. Beautiful. Uh, now, but I, I have. To... Oh, go ahead, Richard. I'll just add uh, something else about um, why it's difficult to play Tau. Um, a lot of players um, still are running the Shadow so Shadow Sun Broadside Castle, where they're expecting to double Cal Yun, um, and this is just a very static list. It doesn't really play the mission, and it's very easy for good opponents to outplay um, them through using board control, using different terrain features. Um, so. I think a lot of Tau players struggle in just visualizing where the game is going to go and in deployment especially. Tau is an army where you can just simply lose in deployment um, if you're not prepared for where the game is going to go. So for example, uh, when I played against Nick Nanavati on stream at Warzone, I, I saw where he was deploying uh, on Pony Dawn of War. He split up his army uh, into both quarters. And so I had the decision, do I Monka into the center and just force him to eventually come out while I control the middle of the board? Or do I go and destroy part of his army on the one side and then swing to the center for late game? Uh, that's what I ended up doing. Um, and it allowed me to maintain board control for quite a while on the relic uh, mission. Um, but having that plan going in at the beginning of the game is really critical for Tau. You need to visualize where your army is going to be in successive turns and plan for that. Um, the second thing I'd say about that is a lot of Tau players see terrain as a detriment to Tau, and I actually see it as the opposite, that ter terrain by and large is very advantageous to Tau. Simply being able to hide drones for as long as possible is critical. And so when I Monka turn one, I almost always use that move to also shield my sh um, and protect my shield drones as much as possible, using terrain to my advantage and forcing people to shoot at Riptides. Oh, sorry, my, my, my was muted. Um, yeah, so 
it's really interesting that you that you say all of that because you you definitely make Tao sound the exact opposite of what of what a lot of people perceive them as, which is just a gunline army. Um, that's actually something that we've talked about on the podcast to death. Uh, is that static gunline armies and and defensive static gunline players really do have a hard time with with playing to the mission if they play back like if they sit in their deployment zone all game if they're not constantly moving around the board and that's actually one thing that uh peter specifically gone on record is noticing about both of you and that is that both of you are really good mobile tau players you move around the board uh you position well um and and you just stay mobile you you play to the mission um and you kind of uh use that tau durability to you know push your force to wherever you need to go on the board uh, board control and it's really it's really interesting it's and that's something that uh a lot of players or a lot of defensive gunline players or players who play those armies uh do need to to work into their game plan now uh, we're gonna move away from tau a little bit uh we're gonna talk about both of you individually uh peter you've been watching these two players play uh you know, pretty much all year, you, you've been on on the scene, looking at Twitch streams, uh, shoutcasting on a few of them, and you've even got a chance to watch a few of these two live. And I think shoutcast, I think you shout, well, you shoutcast the BAO, so you definitely shoutcast at least uh, one of their games. Yes, I've um, I've shoutcasted uh, both. I think at least once, if not, I think Brian twice now. Um, but yeah, perfect. Now, when when you were watching them. Uh, and you've you've watched them evolve and progress as players. Uh, what's what are some things that kind of stand out to you uh, as players that they're doing to keep their consistent performance? Uh, because they've been doing well all season, and it's not just they've been doing well pre Space Marines, post Space Marines. Uh, what what are maybe do you think some keys to success there? And then of course we'll ask Brian and Richard as well. Well, I think one of the big ones is is that they they play to what they know. Um, if you when you watch like Brian and Richard play a game, which I've I've done quite a bit, because even when I'm not shoutcasting, if I'm at an event and they're there, I they may not notice. I hope I hope that it's not too awkward, but I'll come and stand by their table for like several minutes to watch because it's all like. Generals like that are always the ones that are the most fascinating to me, uh, like, like Brian Richards, just the way they play, the way you can tell they're thinking ahead, uh, the way they interact with their opponents. Um, and and they're playing lists that are relatively similar, like they make very few changes over the course of the year, with the exception of when Richard went crazy uh, during that brief like one week where uh, he thought Iron Hands were going to ruin the game and, you know, played like, what, double, triple Ivara? Anyway, other than that, like <laughs> kept a very similar list, so they play what they know. You're not seeing a lot of uh, drastic change, and just how they like analyze the game, they you seem they seem to know exactly when they need to to go in, uh, right? Like they do sit back, but you see those drone movements where they're pushing to the middle. Um, sometimes, like, like in Brian's game against Nick at SoCal, or a couple of Richard's games at BAO, you see this like drastic push turn one, where you kind of like Monka right into the middle of the board and force your opponent out. Like Richard was kind of mentioning, he thought about doing to Nick at Warzone. Um, just the, the way that you can tell they've played so many games with uh, such a similar list that they immediately know what they need to do in order to make a game of things. Yeah, yeah. And and that's another thing too, right? Is if, if you play the same list over and over, you start to see patterns in your opponent's play and you start to focus less on, on what you're doing and you know the decisions you have to make and what your opponent's doing and what your opponent's decisions are, um, which, which is an integral part of winning in any game, not just 40K. Uh, so... It, it's it's really cool watching both of you play now. Richard and Brian, 
Uh, you both have been doing really well all season. What are some things that that either of you are doing uh, to kind of like stick with the meta? Uh, how you know is there like a specific local meta uh, where you go in there and you just constantly play different lists? Do you have different armies like Space Marines and do you get friends to play them? I know Richard has a really good supporting cast. So I'll, I'll get Brian to answer this question first. Um, just kind of like uh, what are, what are some things you do to really keep you know keep your your sharp edge. Yeah, so, uh, you know, here in, uh, I'm in Northern California, uh, kind of the San Francisco Bay Area, and uh, we're lucky to have just so many events around here and uh, so many great players. So, you know, any given weekend of the year, I could definitely make it to an RTT, and there's definitely going to be a GT maybe every other month or so, just kind of within an hour of my house. Um, so there's no shortage of events that I can go to, and... Um, but actually between events, I do all my practicing at events. Uh, I don't play any competitive games, not at events typically. I only play casual Warhammer and uh, like narrative Warhammer. Um, I know that might be heretical to some people, but... Uh-oh, um, get off my podcast. <laughs> yeah, I play almost entirely narrative Warhammer uh, when I'm not at tournaments. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just, uh, I try out different things. I keep an, an ear to the ground about the meta and... Uh, Tau, uh, Tau is an army that can you can make little adjustments uh, because of support systems and weapon loadouts, and you can kind of adjust to the meadow whilst keeping the army fairly similar. So you're going into an ar- uh, uh, a meadow where you're a little more prepared, but you've got an army that you're really used to. And so um, a lot of times, uh, you know, you're not really taking something very drastic. And the Tau have so many little efficiencies you could squeeze out of them if you're just that that much more experienced with it. And um, the one thing that, you know, we've both, both Richard and I have said that the Tau is about its durability. Well, that really allows you to um, adapt mid-game very well. Because even if, if you know how to put your, your, your defenses up, which uh, at this point I, I do, even if an opponent surprises me with a play I didn't expect, typically that surprise is going to kill more drones than I expected, but it's never going to get to one of my assets. And so uh, I still have a chance to kind of recover from mistakes and bad play. I find that the Tau is almost forgiving for me because I'm so good at the defensive aspect of it. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. That before before you talk, Richard, um uh Brandon Grant was also very similar in the way that uh Brian plays. Uh Brandon Grant started off as very much like a narrative player. He played a lot of Dark Angels, uh, kind of just enjoyed playing for fun uh, before he started taking things really seriously. Uh, and now I'm not saying that Brandon Grant doesn't practice, uh, but Brandon Grant definitely gets the most out of his tournaments um, because he is a lot more disconnected than the rest of uh, his team, Real SD, um, out in like North, you know, like where he lives. Uh, but it's it's just really interesting to hear because both I have always considered Brandon and Brian to be uh, similar molds. They're both really intelligent, not not robotic, but even though we call Brandon the robot, but both like really intelligent, gentlemanly. Re- they're reserved. Uh, they kind of approach 40k in the same way from a more analytical perspective. Um, Brian literally calls his Riptides assets. Uh, Brandon calls you know. It's just it's uh it's really interesting to hear both of you talk. Uh, and and also hear that you both have kind of similar practice styles or, or similar. Um, competitive play styles, whatever you coin, whatever uh, term you want to coin that. Uh, now, Richard, on the other hand, uh, plays a lot. I know that. Um, so, <laughs> Richard, why don't we talk about uh, what you do uh, to kind of keep your edge and, and uh, do kind of consistently do well? All right. So, uh, for one, um, 
I have an amazing team network here in Florida. I'm part of Team Brohammer, and we have so many excellent players in the local meta that finding good practice partners for regular games is just so easy for me. Um, I happen to live next to Mark Perry and Cody Saltz. We play often. We practice all sorts of different mission formats um, and meta builds. Um, so I tend to play a lot of games every week. And for the last, say, six to eight months, I've been going to tournaments almost every weekend, whether those are local RTTs or traveling to larger GTs, majors, and a lot of super majors. Um, and so the biggest thing I'd say is that it's just the repetition, just playing week in, week out, playing against all sorts of different lists, traveling to different metas and experiencing new lists, new ideas, um, new people and the way in which they think about the game has been really helpful. Um, and sticking with a core concept. Uh, so since the beginning of the season, I've been sticking with Triple Riptide, Triple Commander, but the configurations have changed over time. What's supporting them? Uh, at the beginning, I had a lot of gun drones dropping in from Deep Strike and Marker drones, um, but you know the sheer volume of anti-infantry at the time was too much, so I started switching to shield drones. Then Plague Bearer started to become a problem with the Thousand Suns um, Chaos Demons list, and so I added in those ballistic skill two-up marker lights. Um, so it's been like subtle changes over time, um, adapting to what the meta is. Okay, uh, and so this is a great segue into the next question I was going to ask, um, which was, what have you, what are you changing, or how have you changed your list to adapt to the meta? Um, Brian, you attend tournaments, uh, so you're a lot like me. I, I'm more of a tournament guy. I don't do a lot of uh, games, and I'm just very busy. So I, when I do tournaments, I like to set aside like a couple weekends in a month or so, and then attend those tournaments to kind of plan them out. Um, so what can happen with that, if you, that's the kind of uh, player you are, and there's nothing wrong with that, is that sometimes, uh, when you show up to a tournament, the meta just completely changes, right? Like with, if you played a game in off a 40k tournament game in August, and then a 40k tournament game in like early September, you experience a completely different meta. All of a sudden there's blue everywhere. There's blue space marines and power armor everywhere. And you're like, what's going on? So, uh, Brian, how, what have you done to kind of, uh, keep tabs on on the 40k meta if, if you have it all um, yeah and also what have you how have you tweaked your list if at all uh to dealing with the 40k and meta and then kind of like evolving sure so um you, you know you're right to say yeah i go to tournaments maybe once every once every three weeks uh on average i probably go to a tournament um but that isn't to say that i don't play every week because i i definitely play warhammer every single week there's probably not a week that goes by that I don't. They're just they're just narrative games. Um, oh, okay, I see. And uh, and I actually I own uh, a lot of Warhammer. I own maybe about uh, maybe about twenty ish armies, and um, and so uh, whenever new rules come out, I typically will be playing in my in my casual games at home. I'll almost never play Tau. I only take Tau to tournaments, and then in all my games at home, I'll play every other army in the game. And that is actually my way to practice. Even though when I'm playing these armies, I'm rarely playing the meta build, let's say, um, I'm getting a good sense of what what goes in the mind of, of a player who wants to play that army and what it is they want to do, what assets they care about. Um, and so the way I learn my matchups is, is just by getting to know and playing the other army. Um, and so that's kind of my main way 
of of learning my opponents and and uh, being prepared when I go to a tournament uh, because I've I've thought about armies I've built lists for that army and uh, and I've tried them on my own. Now be honest, have you ever played a, a buddy a narrative buddy a friendly narrative game and then used a really powerful combination that maybe they weren't expecting because it wasn't <laughs> meta just to test it out on them and then under the guise of like this is a narrative game and then absolutely steamrolled with them um maybe when i first started i actually learned early on that most of my friends who play they're not competitive players at all they don't go to any events and so actually i play very differently like uh in my casual games we don't allow things like rapping and oh. we don't uh we don't do any of the stuff that you know is is pretty a lot of narrative players don't do it to be honest with you or you don't do a thing where you charge one thing but pile into another to stop its overwatch and stuff like that uh, i find a lot of narrative players don't really go for that style of play and often it, i'll give myself like a 500 point disadvantage oh my God. handicap um yeah well i mean that's fair it, it, you know it's all about the fun game anyways yeah make it an interesting game yeah. <laughs> all right right on um so uh mo i guess moving on to the uh, next question uh and then uh peter why don't you take this question away okay sorry was uh the next question was how i changed my army more recently no um oh, oh yes i actually finished that finished that question i forgot there was a second part to that question <laughs> Couldn't do that first. Well, honestly, I, I haven't changed it that much. Um, one of the things I watch out as a Tau player is uh, Tau, in my opinion, generally has a very favorable matchup against the vast majority of the field against many other armies. So just when I bring my army and they bring their army, I start the game at an advantage and they're going to have to do something to reclaim the advantage. And then there's always one or two armies in the meta which dramatically have the opposite on you. And and Richard brought up the, the Plague Bear list. That has that has been a tricky list for a long time for the Tau. And uh, there, there's others, you know, the, the Flyer Spam can sometimes be tough. Um, and so what you're normally doing as a Tau player um, when you're adjusting your list is you're only adjusting for those bad matchups. Your good matchups are fine. You don't need to tweak them. And you, you definitely don't want to... Uh, design your list to win more in those matchups at the expense of your bad ones. So you're only shoring up your, your bad ones. And so when the meta changes, like when space Marines become popular and all of a sudden space Marines can deal with demons, uh, even though space Marines are stronger now, that's a win for Tau because space Marine are good against, uh, or sorry, uh, tower good against space Marines. And now that one of our main enemies like demons is kind of gone, uh, it makes our position stronger overall. So those are the kinds of things I keep an eye out for. Hmm. And that, that's now, really interesting. Move Do, can I, uh, interject there? Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. So you, you just mentioned that Tau is really good into Space Marines, and we're seeing it in the numbers. Um, uh, since the Space Marine release, Tau have really been one of only about two, three factions that are actually performing positively against Marines. Uh, what about Tau um, makes that uh, that work? What makes that, uh, that matchup such a, an advantage for Tau? Sure. The main advantages that Space Marine got were extra AP, which doesn't matter on my shield drones, they got extra attacks, which they'd have to charge to do. And uh, they're kind of starting to take elite, uh, big big elite squads, things like Centurions. And Tau love to kill focused units. If you've just got one big crux unit or two big crux units, and I can put all the buffs into them, I can you know, give myself five marker lights, plus one to wound, ignore their cover, whatever, um, then that works well. Tau also have um, high value shots. So we've got high AP, good damage and the damage 
amounts that we have, which are often damaged too, um, just work well against Space Marines. So the numbers are just super advantageous and a lot of Space Marines' new advantages, they just don't matter all that much against Tau. I'd like to add a couple, um, one of which is a lot of Marines are taking stealthy, um, which means the whole army counts as in cover, and Tau have about three to four easy ways to ignore cover on units. Um, so that trade is basically wasted. Um, another thing is that Tau have easy access to fly screens, uh, which is incredible against, say, assault centurions. Um, you know, having forcing them to charge or come into deep strike nine inches away from two shield drones uh, is amazing. Um, and then Marines also have to trade expensive resources in order to get rid of shield drones. Um, and Tau will take that trade every day. That's that's really interesting. Um, so one thing when I look at the numbers, uh, when when you go to the early Space Marine meta, so just before we got Iron Hands and kind of the lists all changed, um, the Ultramarines lists and the White Scars lists, the very early ones, it t- tended to do better. Do you think there's a reason behind why like these uh, these Ultramarine kind of mobile gun lines that we first saw that have kind of been pushed by the wayside had a better chance against Tau? Would you like to go back? Um, sure. I, I, I actually lost, uh, my only loss at the London GT was against uh, Ultramarines. And um, one of the things that they had, which was pretty tough for me, is it was kind of like an MSU army. They just had tons, tons and tons of intercessors and infiltrators. Um, and they could, from good distance, put out, because uh, they rapid fired full range, they were just putting out a ton of shots, all rerolls. Uh, um, and the army... Um, had just a, a, the, the, the volume of shots necessary to take out my drones. They were really good at shooting. And because they were all these five-man squads, none of them mattered. Um, it was tricky for me to, to take out much of their army turn over turn. And so it was pretty quick for them to get through my, my army. Um, and obviously the aggressors, aggressors aren't great against Tau because you can outrange them very easily. But if they have a perfect piece of terrain that they can kind of move up through where you can't really get to them too well. Obviously, even just one aggressor squad can kill almost an entire army of drones if it gets to go off and do its thing. So uh, maybe that works. And then I guess for White Scars, the only real play White Scars have, in my opinion, is the uh, the, the snare captain. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, if that gets in to pin a couple of your key assets, you can have a very difficult game. Anything that stops you from falling back, the snare captain, the contorted epitome, those things are really tough for Tau if you can't deal with them. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Now, uh, other than the the snare captain and the the contorted epitome, you mentioned demons earlier. Now, the the fall of demons, you said that the fall of demons made it so that uh, tower uh, more well positioned in the meta. Uh, other than demons and kind of like those fringe space marine, uh, I don't want to say fringe space marine lists, but the ultramarine space marine lists and the mobile gun line lists and MC list. Are there any other uh, factions or lists that give tau trouble? Uh, that you think, or that maybe you'd like to avoid if you if you had a choice, Richard, go for it. Um, at the moment, um, my list is very well tailored to deal with Eldar flyers, um, but without velocity trackers and the BS two Markalites, I think that matchup becomes much more difficult. Um, in a bunch of different settings, you're basically forced to take the board control secondaries and just outlast them, um, by getting hold more, um, and just getting one kill a turn. Uh, which is very possible, but um, the matchup isn't easy by any means. Um, other than that, um, Tower extremely good against Knights um, of all forms, Imperium and Chaos. 
Um, they're great against Gene Zero Cult, especially if you um, play the version that Brian and I do, where there's a lot of two-man shield drone units to screen out. Um, every time I go into a tournament, really it's about the player skill. So I'm thinking more about players than lists um, and thinking about how they would play the matchup against me. Um, I think that's more of the preparation that I do uh, for the meta. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. But you, Brian? Anything in the narrative campaigns that, that <laughs> you think you'd destroy Tau secretly? Yeah, so um, I will say, though, I do, much like Richard's saying, I feel fairly confident against most of the field. Um, but, you know, I lose when I... I lose almost always when I get outshot. So... There are many armies that can outshoot me. Uh, uh, certain Admech builds can outshoot me, um, and Admech's only gotten better at shooting in recent months. Uh, Guard can still outshoot me if they, especially if they get the right board positioning or, or terrain, to kind of move up their guardsmen uh, unencumbered. And um, Space Marines, if you're not careful, can outshoot you. Typically, again, Space Marines are, are too concentrated into a few big units, so you can deal with them faster than they could deal with you. But certain Space Marine builds. So I think. That, those are the things I, I need to watch out most for is armies that can um, that can outshoot me and uh, and you, you you just have to be very careful around them. I'd second pure guard and admech as being tricky matchups, but that's where the assault phase comes into play. Um, against those armies, yeah. I tend to play very conservatively using um, I really want a lot of terrain in those matchups. Um, and if they have sentinels or guard squads or Skatari, that's when I'm wrapping things with my shoot. Yep. units and then moving it's really about the commanders surviving the whole game and doing enough damage yeah i also love um against admech i i i often they often make mistakes where they don't screen their units because they don't think you're going to charge them <laughs> and then you can you can charge and pile into their castellan robots or their yeah. cataphrons <laughs> and just stop them yeah, and ramp um, and riptides jumping over screens charging you know a little skatari unit and then piling in to Yes, exactly. Um, uh, so against Admech in particular, I charge them an awful lot. Um, and al also against Guard, because even if you have a commander who uh, runs back and, and uh, you know kills one piece of artillery, charges and piles into two more, um, if you're careful, you might be in such a position where they really have no nothing that can get back there and, and, and answer that commander. So yeah, the, the charge phase becomes really important against those uh, those gunline armies. Or the, they don't see it coming. Or those uh, like basilisks or wyverns or you know <laughs> next to right in a ruin, and it's very yeah. easy to actually trap them. So you, you just pin them back. <laughs> exactly. Yep. And you just kind of like keep them shoved into the corner while you step, take an inch back and shoot. <laughs> like hold on, yeah, exactly. Just take a step, shoot something, and then all right, get back in there. That's pretty funny. Um, so I, I think I, I want to segue a little bit into uh, more about killing Space Marines. Um, that's a subject I think everyone's interested in. Uh, uh, why don't both of you talk a little bit about uh, how you how, what your game plan is against some of the more common Space Marine lists. Um, so I, for, for this instance, it's going to be White Scars and Iron Hands, um, which are the two best performing Space Marine factions for now. Uh, we'll see where the meta shakes up. Actually, Falcon, can you confirm or deny that? that? It's more right now Iron Hands and Raven Guard. White Scars have kind of taken a dip. Yeah. Um, and Imperial Fists uh, kind of on the move. We'll have to wait. It's still very early, but they performed super well um, across the pond this last weekend. So, I mean, they were like first right. through sixth at the uh, 
Warhammer World GT, which I mean, it's whatever. It doesn't mean anything, but it is a thing. So, All right. So, so uh, in regards to the two most popular space ring lists, Iron Hands and Assault Centurions, uh, <laughs> what uh, what are your game plans going into those matchups for for both of those lists? Uh, go for it, Richard. Okay. Uh, so starting with White Scars, uh, like Brian mentioned, the key threat is the Snare Captain getting into you. And so there's a couple ways to prevent that. Um, first, the ignore Overwatch power is critical. If that doesn't go off, um, basically you're going to win the game. Um, or it's at least going to be a close win because they can play KG. But that power needs to go off on the Snare Captain. Um, and it's a 12-inch range power. Um, so the Librarian has to be quite close. So there's a little bit of play, even if the captain gets in, that you can kill the librarian, at least, with a commander, with a riptide. Um, and then in later turns, it'll be more difficult for, the, for that captain to jump around and try and charge key parts of your army. Um, the other way is I've, in my recent list, I bumped up to three Pathfinder teams just to get three grab drones. Um, those um, grab drone units, the Pathfinder drone teams, are five drones and six wounds. And it's actually quite tough for Thunderfire cannons to get through all of that quick enough because by and large, the White Scars uh, Snare Captain needs to get into your lines uh, as quick as possible, basically by turn two. Otherwise, you're picking up too many of their resources. Um, so just having that threat of a minus D3 to their charges, and if there are forests on the board for minus two or craters, um, you can really create a nightmare, just like playing against Gene Zero Cult. Um, so that's kind of how I think about the matchup, is it's as if I was playing against GSC. Um, for Iron Hands, the matchup is a little bit different. Iron Hands are all about durability and efficient uh, shooting. and But by and large, um, so say for instance Nick Nanavati's list, it doesn't really have a tremendous amount of volume outside of the Redemptor Dreadnought and the two Thunderfire Cannons. And so I'm fine with taking those last cannon shots all game. I just need to get rid of the volume as fast as possible and maintain board control against it. I think you have to play very aggressive against Iron Hands. Um, a lot of the variants that we're seeing. So, yeah. uh, real, real quick, I'm sorry, Brian, uh, we'll let you go after this, but so does that include the Iron Hands flyer list as well? Or is that uh, a completely different beast? Honestly, if you have velocity trackers on your Riptides, the flyer list, uh, it doesn't matter if they go first and kill 30 drones. Uh, you're going to pick up four, four, four or five flyers uh, and oh, from there. Uh, because the th Riptide yeah. picks up the gunships, and then the commanders, even with minus two, um, are going to pick up at least one of the the Stormhawks. Uh, okay. And that's their half their list. Um, you can just do exactly too quickly. I'm not worried about the flyer list. All right. Yeah, the flyer list has one turn, and it can't do anything in one turn, and so, um, and it 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 has the same range you do, and so, um, it's not like they can hang back in their little castle. Mm -hmm. uh, they do have to come out, and and so yeah, that's that's really tricky. And I want to second what what Richard said about the um, the snare captain. You know, for me, one of the big things that I'll look at is similarly. You know, it's it's the combination between the snare captain and this librarian, and you can kill one or you can kill either of them to stop that from working. And often uh, they may make a mistake, particularly if you deploy back. The Tau can often deploy really far back because they're so fast to get into the game, and that means they often will have to get their librarian up and into position. And sometimes um, they'll have to put it at risk to get it so far up um, in front of too many of their other screens. And that'll give them just one shot at doing it. And if they don't get that one shot, now you can pretty quickly get to that 
character, whether you have a commander jump over and get to it or a riptide jump over and get to it, which is even more preferable. And um, additionally, the base, most of them have their, not most, but I guess a lot of people I've played have been putting the snare captain on a bike and the base size is very large. And what that means is you can often uh, place your riptides and then your drones in such a way that uh, they can't actually touch any of the things you care about except drones. And the character is not actually going to kill enough drones to often be able to pile into um, pile into a Riptide. And so you can make it so that he has to spend a turn, maybe gets his power off, charges into drones. All your Riptides are still free. After a couple turns uh, of shooting, uh, a, an entire White Scar's army is typically dead, or at least the things that can threaten you. And you've already dealt with that, uh, that Psyker, and so now they're going to have to take Overwatch, and the game's yours. So that, uh, that typically works well for me against White, uh, White Scars. To add to that, um, I play this similar to the Chaos Mirror matchup, uh, where they have the epitome. Um, and sometimes I just play very conservatively, like Brian said. I wait for them to come to me, and I actually save Monka uh, for that moment when I can just Monka one of the Riptides over easily and then uh, snipe out the key character. Um, because most opponents just... You know, almost always the Tau player is going to burn that turn one, turn two at the latest. If you yep. save it to, say, you know, turn three or turn four, uh, and all of a sudden a Riptide is moving 18 inches into the middle of your, your characters, um, that can be really brutal and just win you the game. Yes, I've absolutely, I, I agree with that. Almost every matchup against the Mirror that I've won is because I was, I jumped over their Plague Bearers and shot the Mirror when they didn't think that I would do something like that. And, um, and, you know, the Riptides are super fast, especially when they get to advance. We're giving away all our secrets here. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Like, okay. I, I just gave away earlier this year, like, I don't know, like 4,000 points of Tau, and you make me regret it so much just listening to you guys. I love it. Um, Just one more uh, kind of uh, build that we're starting to see. I want your, your input on it if you want to give it. Uh, so another build that's coming up... Um, Similar to the Manny Chima ran it at Blood and Glory. I've seen it more and more kind of uh, mm -hmm. like across the pond, um, Australia as well. Is this kind of a frontline Raven Guard list, say, um, but instead of running Assault Sense, they're taking Dev Sense to Master of Ambush into the middle of the board and then having like backline Imperial Fists with just, you know, spam of Wyverns and Thunderfire Cannons, like a variant of that. What's your what's your play in, in that kind of matchup, if, if you don't mind me asking? Would you like to go first, Brian? Sure. Um, Matchups like that are about are uh, are about a ticking clock. So they have um, some tools to deal with you. They're going to be able to clear your drones. And um, when I enter a matchup, I usually look for two things. I look at what units do they have in their army that kill suits, and what units do they have in their army that kill drones, and which one do they have fewer of. And so I'm making a decision early in the game. Am I going to kill the things that kill my suits or am I going to kill the things that kill my drones? And for example, if they had a bunch of backfield dreadnoughts with last cannons, um, it's going to be really hard to deal with all those. So they have things that can kill suits. Well, then I'll kill their things that kill drones. So I have drones until the end of the game and those last cannons are meaningless. On the flip side, if they have uh, going to be able to kill my drones in one, or one turn or two turns, but they only have one or two units that can actually hurt my suits, then I kill the things that kill the suits. So even by the time the drones are dead, um, my suits are somewhat invulnerable or invulnerable enough for another two turns that I'll, I'll deal with the rest of their army. And so that's a calculation that I make at the start of every single game. And with Raven Guard in particular, I find that is the crux to the victory because Raven Guard 
will have one or two really hard uh, units, whether it's a big uh, Vanguard veteran squad or Centurion assault squad, and and maybe one character um, that that's really going to hit hard. And other than that, they have a bunch of you know support you know Phobos units or things like that that I've seen, and they don't really do much against a Riptide. So. Uh, for me, yeah, I'll just say, okay, I'm going to kill those those two heavy hitter squads, and then for the rest of the game, I'm invulnerable, even if I have no drones. How, how do you guys? So eliminators are being taken more and more. Um, how do you guys <laughs> feel about eliminators going into Tau, playing Tau into eliminators? Do you just kind of like SMS them to death, or are they an actual issue? Um, they're not an issue at all. Yeah, not at no all. damage. They can kill like maybe a drone or two a turn at most oh because you just drone protocol you save your protocol yes okay. all the mortals and damage go to one mortal wound um and even even then sometimes i just take it on them like you know, <laughs> exactly yeah uh, i'm not worried about it uh so yeah just sms they have four up saves with minus one no cover um they're yeah they're easy kills for you yeah exactly beautiful all right uh peter do you have anything else to add on to the marine no, I, this was a great conversation. I loved it. Let's move on, Pablo. Do your thing. All right. Say something ridiculous. Okay. Okay, so what are some Tau tips for Tau players looking to take it to the next level that you guys have? So there are a lot of Tau players. Um, mm-hmm. Well, comparatively to Space Marines, there's not a lot of Tau players. But there's not a lot of any players because there's so many Space Marine players. However, uh, there are more and more players moving over to Tau. Uh, and I imagine after listening to this episode and your Art of War episodes and after uh, Rich's performance at Warzone Atlanta and Brian's performance at SoCal Open, um, what what are some tips that you want to give to both new players uh, who are looking to start Tau and also players who've been playing Tau for a long time that uh, that just can't quite break in, into the, the top tier? Uh, Richard first. Okay. Uh, so the first thing I would say is really, really practice deployment. This is absolutely critical because it sets you up for the entire game. Um, and as an example, I got to Warzone Atlanta a little early um, the night before, and I was watching uh, our very own Val Heffelfinger play a game against Necrons. And for two or three turns, his commanders were actually in front of the Riptides. Uh, I don't know how that happened. I didn't get to see the beginning of the game, but... I immediately recognized it as a potentially disastrous mistake. Um, And I think he probably very likely deployed the Riptides as far back as possible to try and limit the damage they were taking. But it's perfectly fine um, if the Riptides are taking damage. That's exactly what you want. It's just about hiding the drones as much as possible um, for as long as possible. So I think a lot of Tau players can benefit from just practicing deployment. Um, Just... Here, I'm, I'm stuck on pointy dawn of war against raven guard what exactly is my plan how am i going to deploy here maybe it's the full deployment and i'm going i already know i'm going second how exactly am i going to counter deploy what they're going to do um just practicing deployment is absolutely huge the second thing i'd say is just come into each game with a game plan what exactly do i do against brandon grant's pure guard list what do i do against nick Notavati's iron hands brigade what's my plan what am i trying to kill how exactly am I going to position my army? How do I do it on these different deployment zones? I think Tau is very much about a, a long-term game plan um, at the competitive level. Yeah, the things I would add to that are, are kind of echoing things we've said already. It's uh, With Tau, you have to bring patience to the army. Um, you can't go 
you can't go for the you know the one turn kill um and also with tau you can't resign yourself to saying well i can't hold more or i can't get recon or my army doesn't do board control um a lot of tau players give that up especially when they want to play gunline and um if you're if you're legitimately trying to win any event you you're, you're going to want to maximize uh your score every single turn of every single game and so you're you're you can't give up on those points. You can't give up on board control. Um, and so you have to uh, really, uh, you know, it's cliche, but you really have to play the mission. Don't just play to kill your opponent's army um, because that's that's uh, the wrong way to play Tau. Uh, play them defensively, play your mission, uh, have patience, and focus on not losing your assets at all costs. All right, beautiful. Now, one final tip before we move on to the uh, end of the episode. So far, it's been a very great hour. Um, and that is for people who are looking to try and beat Tau. Now, they are, as, as Peter said, they are uh, coming up more in the meta, especially on the East Coast uh, and at Warzone Atlanta in particular. Uh, but I imagine we're going to see more Tau in the LVO uh, and coming in the coming months. Um, and also, I would be shocked if we didn't see a Tau player like in the top... 25 at Delvio, or a top player at least didn't go five and one. Uh, I'm banking on it for it to be one of you two, um, but you know things happen. Uh, also, are you both going to Delvio? Just curious. Yep, I'll be Perfect. there. I'll be there as well. Yeah, you better be there. <laughs> uh, but so, what are what are what are like uh, like some brief cliff notes or tips that you can give someone to do well against Tau without giving away too many secrets or or um, you know, spending too long. What's like a general strategy uh, that you think that you see people make mistakes on um, that they shouldn't do to beat Tau? So I'll tell you the few things that I generally am afraid of that someone might do to me. Um, people who play other armies the way I play Tau are usually scary. So people bring a lot of patience to their army. Um, the thing that usually wins me games is someone over committing early and then my army can just have the pick of any of their targets and I can go all out on them. Um, and, you know, my commanders are all at range without putting themselves at risk. And that's those are the easy wins. It's the people who sit way back out of my range and just take one kill. Or it's the people who hide their entire army, every single model, force me to just use my SMS and, and they're just going to try to, you know, keep the game low scoring and, and pull out a win that way. Um, or the people who are patient to say, I'm not going to commit my Centurions until essentially 100% of the drones are dead. And when I go in, I'll you know, lose a few, but I'll fight twice and kill two Riptides or something like that. Um, so people who bring patience to beating Tower are crucial. And the games I win are the ones where people commit too early um, or let me play my game, essentially. So don't let me do that. And uh, then you'll have a good shot. Nice. Richard? Uh, the other the other thing I'd add about that is Tau is very much a mid range shooting army. Um, oftentimes you can either outrange them, you can use terrain to your advantage, um, you can carefully sacrifice uh, particular resources that you have in your army um, in order to get points. Um, please don't get wrapped by shield drones. Um, but I'd I'd echo what Brian said about patience. Um, you don't need to go and try and kill. You know expecting to kill a riptide or two um, try and clear the drones as steady as possible and then go after the riptides 
Um, really, to beat this list, you need to clear it in three waves. You need to clear the drones, clear the riptides, and then get to the characters. Um, and, you know, very that's very difficult to do, but you need to have the patience to try and uh, achieve it. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, all right. Well, th- that was a really good, quick, you know, tips. Uh, I definitely learned something new. Um, and yeah, I imagine getting wrapped by shield drones is awful, especially if you've got a lot of shooting. Um, <laughs> if you were, you know, yeah, it's sad. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, so at the end of every episode, we like to open it up to the patrons uh, for them to ask extra Patreon questions. Um, so if that's something that interests you, or if you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can on over, head on over to patreoncom tactics where uh, you can ask the questions. Uh, we do have some questions from the patrons for this episode, um, starting with uh, Mr. Mr. Uh, Kelsey. Um, he's actually talking about uh, Fantasy 40K, which is a sub, which is a side topic. Um, and and I, I do want to hear your thoughts on this because you're two players that I would definitely like try to pick up any 40k fantasy league um so to briefly explain uh for those of you who don't play do don't sports because i know there are listeners who don't do sports um a 40k fantasy league is the idea of uh picking virtual players uh like richard and brian um and then they're having their performances score points for your virtual team that you usually draft or pick uh and then comparing that to other players and how and their players and the players they picked and how they performed right so if i had a team of like Richard Siegler, Nick Nadavati, and Sean Naden, uh, and Peter had a team of like Brian, <clears throat> Brian, uh, and two other players. I can think of I'm more glad you can think of four players. Brandon Grant <laughs> play this game. Brandon Grant, right? <laughs> I just completely drew a blank. Um, they you would did compare so well. each other. You did You went an hour, Pablo. <laughs> so I'm, I'm proud of you. You went an um, hour before you, you you goofed, and it was a small one. I'll give you that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh. If you if you have these two teams paired up against each other, both of the respective players would score points um, depending on how their results were. Uh, and then you at the end of the tournament or at the end of the season, however long you want to make the league, the fantasy thing, uh, the the winner at the end, the players who performed the best uh, on their team would win, right? So that's the kind of the way it works. It's it's like you know D and D sports D and D. If you actually played fantasy football or anything like that, like like myself and Val have. Um, but what are your kind of thoughts on that, uh, Brian and Richard? How how would you feel? Are you familiar at all with fantasy, at all um, in sports? I I'm, I don't participate in them. I'm familiar with them, but uh, um, I don't know. Is I don't know. Uh, you know, because we have a ranking system that's so clear and predictable. Um, you know, the top players just keep keep winning over and over again in a very predictable fashion. You know. Uh, I, I don't know how much room there is for for great upsets or in there. Uh, you know, it seems like whoever gets the picks <laughs> have a huge advantage. But um, no, I'm sure it could be fun if if you're into that. Why not? Uh, for me, uh, Team Brohammer actually did two fantasy drafts last year. Ooh. Uh, one for a GT, one for a major, um, and it was a lot of fun. Um, but it's really better for local tournaments where you know all the players um, and that you know that everybody's going to basically show up, uh, so there aren't many drops. Um, but it's, you know, it's good for camaraderie, um, and just, you know, we did it for uh, a charity, uh, event. Nice. Winner, uh, donated it to charity. Yeah. I love, I love the idea. Uh, we did one for the LVO this, this past LVO. And we also, uh, I've done a couple others for some local tournaments or for, or not local tournaments, for smaller tournaments. Um, and it definitely helps when 
the all of the players drafting know who all the players are. Um, although I think it would be super cool if, uh, you know, um, you had like a super league. Um, you already have a kind of like a ranking system, um, so you can kind of you can kind of like you know let players know like hey this guy's really good he's like number eight in the itc you should draft him even if you don't necessarily know who he is um although of course players aren't contracted to play so brian if if uh brian decides he wants to take next year off um someone drafting him might be a little bummed if they first pick brian pool and then he takes a you know takes a year off and they're like oh so uh there's definitely some kinks there but it's always something that i've seen um people joke around with and that was just kind of like one of the questions i post to my patrons um but uh someone uh, someone has a question about farsight so can you make farsight work at all um commander farsight is that is that something you've ever toyed with just just the model or the entire farsight enclave (laughs) Uh, probably just the model i don't think they i don't think they're talking about uh actually they said this specifically you can actually take this however you want he said ask them about making farsight work so you can I take see. that however you want. I've, interpret it. I've played a lot of Farsight Enclaves. I've played the eight number of times. I've tried a lot of different things. Um, and uh, you could absolutely make it work. It's not optimal. You would be deliberately being less than optimal. So if you're willing to put that aside, you, you could play to the strength. Farsight lets you Montcaw twice in a game. And that's pretty, that's pretty cool. You could do some great stuff with that. Um, the disadvantage, of course, the rest of your army would have to be Farsight Enclave, and they don't give you a lot of a benefit. They they give you reroll ones to wound within six inches, I think. <laughs> yeah, it's brutal. Um, and no, they don't give you the Overwatch benefit. And so six inches, that's pretty rough, and it doesn't even work in combat, mm-hmm. which is sad. Um, and so that 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 benefit is pretty low. They have the drop site clear stratagem, which could be cool. It lets you get plus one to hit to turn you deep strike. So if you wanted to play Crisis Suits, um, it's okay. It forces your hand into deep striking. When I find when I have crisis suits, I usually want half the games them start on the board and half the games they deep strike. So kind of forces your hand a bit there. Um, so yes, you could make it work. Um, you'd have to play to the mobility and you'd have to hope for matchups where people aren't charging you um, too often, uh, really. Hmm. All right. Uh, Richard, do you have anything else to add to that? If... Um... The Master of War ability, what lets you Monka or Kalyan, wasn't set-blocked. I would consider taking Farsight just for that Monka, yeah. uh, but unfortunately it is, um, along with uh, Savior Protocols. So you really have to stick to basically one Sept. That's right. Yeah. Um, but I will say that Farsight Enclaves is ripe for a supplement. So Games Workshop, please. Hmm, beautiful. Okay, uh, a patron Jesse wants to know, uh, what are you, are either of you realistically expecting anything Tau, uh, for Tau to get out of the Psychic Awakening releases? Um, and then uh, what new units or rules would you ask for if you could have any new unit or rule released for Tau? Um, <laughs> and then he makes a joke about dealing with local players flipping their tables from shield drones tanking too many wounds. This is like Pandora's box here. <laughs> <laughs> I think Tau players have a history of uh, asking for too much. Um, so I'll try to be modest here. Um, I definitely think we're going to get stuff out of Psychic Awakening and Chapter Approved because, you know, they've already said that they're trying to adjust or give something to every faction. But that said, I I don't know how much really to expect uh, just yet. Um, Actually, if I'm to guess, I actually think what we just said, like uh, some special rules for Farsight Enclaves um, to flesh them out a little more, might actually be one of the 
more likely things to see considering they've given them a lot of love in the past. Um, as far as what I would hope they do to change the army, um, that's a really tough call because the whole army is a, it's a puzzle that kind of fits together. And so changing any one thing in isolation requires a lot of rethinking to other aspects of it. But I do definitely agree with people's frustration with the, the drone mechanic. I think the drone mechanic is actually genuinely interesting and works well, but um, I do think that it causes frustration. And so it's a mechanic that people don't like to play against, which is, I think, where Tau get a, a reputation of not being the, the most fun to play against. Um, you know, you go five turns of a game before you kill anything interesting. That can be frustrating. It could be worse. And so I, it could Imagine be worse, if yeah. Imagine if made their save first, then you could pass it off. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's true. So I do... Um, I do hope that they find a mechanic that keeps the essential durability of the army, but in some way makes opponents feel like they're they're making better progress. I'm not sure. Um, it's that's, a hard design. That is problem. a hard. That's a good game design question, Brian. Um, then that's part of the reason why people who go to to university for game design degrees can make a ton of money. Um, so I just wanted to point. That's a really good game design theory question. Uh, but anyways, Richard, uh, um, what, what do you want to see from Psychic Awakening for Tau? I would like at least one anti-psychic thing, whether that is a stratagem to deny a psychic power on a four-up, whether it's a relic like the old talisman to do a you know 2d6 deny the witch, or an anti-psychic drone, um, just something to engage in the psychic phase. Um, other than that, I just love to have new warlord trades, relics, and strategies. Yeah, honestly, oh <laughs> they're, you know Tau have some some pretty good ones, most of which are one CP. But outside of that, um, Tau could really use um, some new uh, Warlord traits and relics. They, yes, the new marine ones, those are just, horrible. They're not the best. Uh, and honestly, I could play every game without CP, Warlord traits, or relics, and it'd be pretty much yes. the same, honestly. Yep, I agree. Yeah, the, the, they just don't give you much to play with. Um, and so you're, you know, the choices are so limited. And uh, they, they don't have to be anything and, ridiculous, like minus one. Damage. Yeah. They can be something like the add D3 command points at the beginning of the battle round. Yeah, just something to give you a choice, any sort of choice. That would be that would be cool. I don't, I, to be honest, I don't care as much if they give me something in the psychic phase. Obviously, it's frustrating to not be able to deny psychic power, but I'm fine with the army having an obvious kind of gap if that's what they wanted to do. Um, uh, I, have, I have a very large tau collection. I have a lot of things like Crute uh, uh, and stuff too. It'd be fun if they made those actually an interesting unit as well. <laughs> All right. Um, so the uh, next question um, is, a, is a bit of a troll question, but I, I think there's an essence to it um, that I want to that I kind of want to address, and that's um, on uh, drones and and their points costs. So are shield drones, and we're not talking about the rest of the drones. We know we're specifically talking about shield drones here. Are they overpriced, underpriced? Do they do you feel like they need to be have their points adjusted in any way? Um, or as Brian, as, uh, Brian said, which I think is um, probably the more obvious answer, um, should they just, should they just have their rule changed, um, to make it so that they're, they're a lot more satisfying to play with and against? Uh, Richard, you have some thoughts on uh, this? Fundamentally, if you want to change shield drones, whether that's the points or the way in which savior protocols work, you need to rebalance the entire book. Um, uh -oh. basically competitive Tau is designed around this. And I think at the current moment, it's basically at the perfect balance um, for Tau to be seen at competitive tournaments. So yeah. even drones going up a point would be massive. Um, shield drones, that is. Um, yeah. Really, yeah. by and large, 
the other absolutely drones agree. aren't enough. I've tried them out. The marker drones are cool if you have a couple, but gun drones, even with the buff they got in the last FAQ, uh, where they can rapid fire up to six shots uh, per gun, uh, you know, six shots total, uh, three per gun, it's just they don't have the durability at all. Uh, they can just be picked up in a single turn. Oh. Yeah. If it, the thing is, when you compare, if you compare equivalent looking units, um, and I'm I'm gonna pick a fairly extreme example, but you compare a modern aggressor, who who actually at his face value is fairly similar to a crisis suit. You know, they're both T5, three wounds. They both like if you put a bunch of burst cannons on your your suit, your suit is double the points, and it doesn't have power fists. It doesn't uh, have ballistic scale three. Doesn't have you know four attacks, and. Um, the aggressor shoots twice as much or, you know, or maybe two thirds as much. And so uh, what you're paying for is obviously an older codex, but you're also paying for that, the, the, the savior protocols. You're paying for the fact that those suits can be so durable uh, more than anything. Um, and uh, even adjusting the points up a little bit would make those untenable, right? Crisis are already basically unusable. Um, yeah. And the points going up a bit wouldn't, wouldn't be right. I think it's important to remember that a, a, a drone, a shield drone, it, it can't fight, right? Like it has one strength three attack at hitting on fives. So it definitely does not fight. And it can't shoot. It has no weapons. So all it does is stand there, and it's 10 points. Um, uh, you look at what a, what a guardsman can do. A plague bear. Um, about sitting on objective. Yeah, or a plague bear sitting on an objective, uh, playing a very similar role. Um, I think it's... Uh, I think it's totally fair. Interesting. All right. Um, oh, next question. Uh, he Lauren wants to know how you would deal with uh, playing against White Scars and Raven Guard or really aggressive melee armies uh, on shorter deployments going second. So this is like worst case scenario, pointy dawn of war. There's a big old, you know, sure. block in the middle of your deployment zone that you can't deploy on. Mm-hmm. And you're up against that White Scars Raven Guard player. These are easy matchups, actually, for Tau. <laughs> <laughs> um, funny enough, uh, that can often be a great scenario. Most Raven Guard players, they're so used to their script of charging first turn, uh, that being their whole game plan, and that is just a horrible idea against Tau. Tau has a, like a four-layered screen on turn one, and you're just going to take so much Overwatch and exchange for nothing, and then your whole army is going to be standing right in front of the Tau gun line. It's it's one of the worst things you could ever try against the Tau, and yet nearly every Raven Guard player I've played against since their book came out has tried to do it to me, and I'll give them first turn just because they're they're bound to do it, and I'll get um, I'll get a shooting phase before my turn even starts and and lose almost nothing. So uh, I generally find that to be a pretty easy matchup. Interesting. Interesting. What about you, Richard? Um, I played against it a couple times, like round six at a. Uh... Uh, SoCal, and the aggressors, I just have prepared positions up, so my drones have a 3-up armor save and a 5-up feel no pain. Um, and then against Centurions, which have the Omni specs, I spend 2 CP to put them at minus 1 to hit for their Hurricane Bolters. Um, they'll clear some drones, but them clearing drones means that their charge becomes longer, and then I have the grab drones likely hidden out of line of sight so they can't shoot at them. And the, like we said, the Thunderfires and Eliminators aren't going to do enough damage to kill all three of them. Um, and if they fail the charge with the Captain that ignores Overwatch, like Brian said, you're just going to pick up key resources on their first turn and then clear the rest on your turn. Right. So it's absolutely brutal. 
that's very that's a very good point all right um finally uh chip wants to know with the marine meta cemented for at least six months are there any units you're considering to bring in to counter it or counter marines maybe in fists and salamanders well i guess we still have to wait to see that salamanders fact. <laughs> yeah we do um, the salamanders are obviously you know as written pretty pretty terrible for the tau um the, I don't feel as bad against the fists. I've been playing a lot against the fists, and um, you know the fists have a similar range. They often want to use heavy bolters. They're going again for high value, high AP shots, um, and often they are relying on you having the vehicle keyword, <laughs> which you don't. You have the monster keyword on your riptides, and so they're not really getting all of their great efficiencies off against you. And so uh, if it's a shootout. I generally think you've got the upper hand in that shootout against the fists. Um, and uh, the salamanders are such short range. If, if that stratagem changes um, enough, they're such short range that they, they just, they'll be dead by the time they get to you. So that's, a, that's the challenge there. Okay. All right. Um, and that is it. That is the last question. Uh, thank you so much, Brian and Richard, for coming on. And also, Peter, the Falcon, swooping in from 48 Stat Center to make an appearance. Thanks, Peter, for coming on. Hey, I, I got to rep my boy Val. He fell asleep at the wheel, man. And somebody's got to take over. <laughs> so, Someone's got to uh, be his backup. Some quick announcement. Um, so some quick announcements before we end the show. Uh, the LVO is coming very quickly. If you still want to pick up a ticket. I don't know if tickets are for sale yet. I know Reese is pushing for a very specific number um, uh, for the LVO. Uh, but uh, basically, uh, this is it's coming down to the line where we're, we're finalizing the number of uh, players that can fit in events. Um, so not just for 40k, but pick up your tickets for X-Wing, Star Wars Legion, any of the other events mm -hmm. that you want to play in, 30k narrative, wh whatever. Um, because uh, essentially what happens is uh, we sell the tickets, we look at what how, how the events are selling, uh, and then we start capping off the number of players for an event. So for events that don't sell a lot of tickets early we cap them off at a lower number to make room for other events that are selling better um and that's just a space thing so you know make sure to get your ticket early for the lvo uh for whatever event and for 40k and of course we'll see you there it's gonna be a really good lvo it'll probably be uh it'll be every year it'll, it's the biggest one but i think this one's actually going to be the biggest one um uh, also uh richard siegler has some uh a plug and some big news all right, uh, so Mark Perry and I have had the great fortune of being um, signed by a esports team, uh, Team Obey Alliance, and they are signing us to create competitive 40K content uh, beginning next year. Uh, so if you're into watching and learning about competitive 40K and watching high-level play, uh, please be on look, the lookout for that. Um, and I'd also like to plug a couple um, podcasts that I really enjoy. Uh, one is the Florida Man podcast, um, which is hosted by a lot of local Brohammer guys like Dan Smith and John Lennon, um, the Art of War podcast by Nick Nanavati, uh, the Fog of War podcast, um, which is a really great breakdown of meta factions and uh, lists, especially the South's meta, and then the Best in Faction podcast. Beautiful. And Stat uh, Brian, Center. Any... <laughs> of course, <laughs> but I see Pablo has that in the notes. Ah. Uh, and then, uh, Brian, is there any... So any plugs you have? Well, as you know, everyone who plays Warhammer also has a podcast or a, or a YouTube true. channel. 
So, um, you know, I, I'm an audiovisual nerd and so I like to make some video content. Um, so I've been doing that uh, for the last year or so. Um, it's on YouTube and it's called uh, Tabletop Titans. And we do live games every Thursday, 6 p.m. Pacific time. Um, so, yeah, we, we play competitive games, but uh, we don't always play the meta lists. And, uh, yeah, we have a great great time Tabletop there. Tabletop Titans. You guys, so check Brian out. you need to watch that. It's uh, Some of his tutorials, Brian's tutorials, are friggin' fantastic. Um, just like the highest quality audiovisual stuff um, you're going to see in this game. So if you're not already uh, subscribed or whatever, Thanks. like do yeah. it. It's uh, some of my favorite stuff to watch. Beautiful, beautiful. And of course, you can always uh, head on over to FrontlineGaming.org where you can find in the finest hour, 40kstats.com, 40kstatscenter, not 40kstats.com. That's on 40kstats.com, not FrontlineGaming.org. Uh, and the Art of War podcast, uh, in addition to this podcast and all of our episodes in the archives. Uh, and then while you're there, buy some cool stuff, check out the secondhand shop and all of that jazz. All right. Thank you all for listening. You are all, of course, the best listeners in the world. And as always, have a good one. Bye-bye.